listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us a text, 2057. Send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. 24 hours ago, I'd never heard of this disease. It's called EDS. We're going to learn what it stands for. But I could tell the person contacting me was genuine. And I have a very, I think, developed detector for detecting those that are pulling your leg and those who are telling the truth. I like to think I have through experience, judging people. And this story is true. And it also rung true about what a person can go through, not just with a debilitating disease, but with a disease that the medical establishment doesn't detect or recognize, and where friends and family think, particularly, dare I say it, if you're a woman, that you're being a drama queen and just need to get on with it, harden up, develop. And yet all the while, you're suffering a devastating disease. Well, to tell us of this disease and to tell us of this experience, we're joined by the wonderful Sarah King. Good morning. Good morning, Rodney. Thanks for listening to my story. I'm really grateful. It's an amazing story, and you're an amazing person. You are an amazing person, and you're so bubbly and full of life. <laughs> Surprising for someone who has to battle to get out of bed most days. But I, I reckon know. it's all about attitude. Yeah. Well, you've got a great mindset. We're going to learn about what you were like before the disease hit in a minute. But first, what does EDS stand for, and what is it? So Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome is a genetic connective tissue disorder. So um, that kind of doesn't make a lot of sense by itself, but to explain that further, connective tissue is pretty much everything in our body except solid things like bones. It's, I mean, I'm being kind of very, very broad here, but about 90% of our body is made up of different forms of connective tissue. And The connective tissue in people with EDS isn't formed properly. Um, Because it's in our DNA, it's right from birth. So some people are quite young when it starts to impact them. But for most people, it's as you get older and older and older, your body starts to fall apart. And because it's all of our body, often it's all the different parts of your body, sometimes all at the same time. Um, hypermobility is the most common way that it's picked up. What by does the- hypermobility mean? So hypermobility is a, a real classic one, is a lot of people with EDS talk about being able to do party tricks when they were children. They could bend mm-hmm. their thumbs right back. Their uh, limbs would go in funny directions. They're often really good at ballet or gym. What we used to call double-jointed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so these, you know, as children, they were constantly overstretching, myself included, 
things because it looked funny and people thought you were clever and not realizing that that wasn't going to heal. And when you hit your forties, you were really going to suffer for it. What was your party trick? Uh, I could do the splits till I was bizarrely old. I can still make prayer hands behind my back. I can uh, twist my thumb right down against my arm, all sorts of, (laughs) I'm, I'm particularly hypermobile, but a lot of people with EDS, are hypermobile young, but then their body sees up as they're older. So then, you know, that's not a trait anymore. So, um, but, yeah. It's oh, sorry, I'll just go on to just explain. There's actually 13 different subtypes of it. So for some people, uh, it's a vascular system, for example, and they can have a heart attack at 25, completely out of the blue. Um, there's there's uh, issues, a lot of people suffer with gastro issues, with heart issues, with, oh, I, I mean, I can literally go through the entire body and tell you about all of the different things. But in summary, the biggest issue for me is that my muscles do all the work of my tendons and they essentially hold my body together. So I, my body's just constantly exhausted. Um, my oh, I see. So body, just standing there, you're yeah, having just- to... Use your muscles. On a chair, my muscles are doing a job that they shouldn't have to do. Going down a step, my muscles have to literally sort of strengthen every single part of me and hold me together to be able to hold my body down that step. Um, And because your tendons and joints don't work properly, big major bones slip out of place constantly and And for me, my neck's been a constant problem. So therefore, I have massive central nervous issues because my central nervous system doesn't work properly, which you can't running down a spine that's all off in funky, wobbly directions. Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but unlike listeners, I can see you because I'm on (laughs) Zoom. And you look wonderful. And very bubbly. You're holding your body together well, might I say. I was always told I had great posture and now I realize it's because I was physically holding myself together (laughs) all day um yeah I am very careful with my time so I'll have you know I'll I'll give this time to you this morning I'll spend a bit of time in my garden and then that'll be my day I'm careful to not burn myself out yeah and so for the rest of the day you need is lying down what you need to do yeah, unfortunately it is, and it's such a frustrating thing because I was always such a busy person, so I've had to learn to force myself to lie down. And lot. when you lie down, can you read or listen to something, or do you sleep? It depends on how far I've pushed myself. If I've pushed myself to the point that I've got brain fog, I've literally got to tune out completely. Um, otherwise, yeah, I, I sleep a lot, lots of naps. Mm. Yeah. And are you in pain? Always absolutely constant no matter what I do use painkillers to manage the worst of it but I try to not take any but I live with a constant level of pain that I imagine most people would take the day off work and go to bed and tell me you said it's in your DNA so did your parents or grandparents suffer? Yeah. So for me, it's through my father's side. And we actually discovered that because a very kind cousin took me to my the specialist appointment that I was diagnosed at. 
And as he was diagnosing me, she kept saying, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that too. <laughs> and so we very quickly worked out which side of my family it was. And we're pretty sure my papa probably died with it. He was he was in a lot of pain. That's um, your granddad. Yeah. On my dad's side. So, yeah, we have found it. And then since we've found another family member on that side with it. So we know where it came from. So it doesn't necessarily always express or. No. So your dad had carried it, but didn't necessarily suffer from it. Yeah. So it it has about a 50% hit rate and it can skip entire generations quite easily. Um, And can they pick it up with DNA analysis? They, uh, my the types, they can't. So okay. the other 12 types they can, okay. but just unfortunately the type that I have, they haven't found the gene, the gene for it yet. Yeah. Okay. And when was it it's named after people that discovered it or diagnosed it or described it? How long yeah. has it been in the medical literature? I think it's about the 1920s. That's entirely from memory. It's been okay. a while since I kind of researched it all deeply. But and how uh, common is it? Well, that's the big question, really, because it goes undiagnosed so commonly and people have to get so bad before someone puts two and two together. Uh, there's There are a lot of conversations around the possibility that a lot of people with ME, CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, and, you know, other fibromyalgia, there are all sorts of illnesses that are very, very quickly diagnosed and then people are brushed off, that there's a possibility that they are just undiagnosed EDSs. So, mm. yeah, the medical community are very, very slowly opening their ears and listening. Um, but if I went to my GP and said out of the blue, what do you know about EDS? Would he know what I was talking about? From my experience, uh, it's very, very unlikely. Okay. Um, and or they'll say, I've heard of it, but I don't really know what it is. Yeah. Now is it a disease that just gets worse and worse and worse and you manage it? Or is there something or things that you can take or things that you can do to slow it or reverse it? Well, so it can't be treated as such. You're never going to have a body that builds itself properly again. So or ever, for that matter. Um, but, yeah, it can be stabilised. Um, so, there's yeah, there are varying treatments. They um, Part of it is I developed extreme allergies, so I use antihistamines to keep those under control. Um, I have a, a form of therapy called prolotherapy where I have needles jammed right into the middle of the joint and it stabilizes that joint. And so I've had about 40 injections of that over various joints in my body over the last three years, uh, which is why I'm now an upright person and no longer using a wheelchair. Um, There's, depending on what, because it can be just any part of your body, people have heart problems. So there's heart medications, you know, people have massive gastro problems. So there's varying medications you can take. So really, 
there are varying forms of mitigating either the EDS mm. or the comorbidities that come with EDS. Um, but yeah, ultimately it is degenerative. Your body can't heal itself properly. How old are you? I'm 46. <laughs> just a chicken. Yeah, uh, just Do you like the future must be scary for you? I've what I've been through was so hideous and so close to death that I see my life as being every day is such an amazing blessing. And I know what's wrong with me now and I know how to manage myself and I've completely accepted it. And accepting something like this is the biggest life changer ever. Just accepting, I'm never going to have the life that I had ever again. I'm never going to be able to fulfill all the career dreams that I had but instead I have this quiet life and I have chickens and I have turkeys and I have grandchildren around me and I'm home for them. And I just focus on the good. good and on you. Yeah. I met a lady at the weekend who has a 37 year old special needs son. And she was a lovely lady and she cares for him. And I said, how is it? And she said, well, it's lovely. He wakes up in the morning and he says to me, aren't we going to have a wonderful day today, mum? Bless. And through the day, he says, mum, aren't we having a wonderful day? Oh. And she says, when he goes to bed, he looks up, to, up at me and he says, didn't we have a wonderful day today, mum? And isn't that the wonderful thing about life, that a mindset and the love that you'd have for that boy and his mindset and how he is? And you'll know this from your past life. People going through their life with not a care in the world but deeply troubled <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and now we we you feel so blessed that you had an hour up um and not in a wheelchair and got chickens and funny enough your life is probably richer than it's ever been i don't i'm not advocating no. suffering you're absolutely right there are vast amounts of my life that I look back on and think I was so busy and we were striving for this materialistic world that, you know, everything went into and working a million hours and studying and, and all the kids and all of the various, you know, things that the kids had to do to be socially right, all the lessons and the sports and the, you know, all of that. And we were just on this treadmill and, mm. I can honestly say that I've got to be grateful to EDS for the fact that we stepped off that. Well, we didn't step off. I was pushed off. <laughs> you fell off. Tell yeah. me this. Tell me this. That right. <laughs> um, tell me this. Let's go right back. Let's go back to your life pre you'd never heard of EDS. And as far as you were concerned, you were a healthy young woman. Tell me about that life. Well, I, so I 
I was in my late teens diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. So I was sort of was aware that there was something always in the background, but I'd still just plowed on through life. So I'd traveled overseas. Um, I got married, had my children. We, I ran a number of businesses in Auckland. So I was a passionate entrepreneur and I uh, had just such an amazing time with that. I was I had spots on the Good Morning Show with Mary Lambie a couple of times over. Wow. Um, I was a regular as the wedding planner, and I was a regular five years later. I came back and did a whole lot of gluten-free cooking. Um, we had a, yeah, I published a gluten-free cookbook. We were super, super, super busy, you know, real busy Auckland life. And then as our children and got to you about- had four children. Four children, yeah, with a there's a 10-year gap between them. So as the elder two got to 10 and 12, I uh, was sort of starting to kind of question life in Auckland, and I wasn't sure it was really what I wanted for their teenage years. So we made the decision to sell up everything in our world, and I got a job um, in Niue Island as the general manager of the resort there. Oh, good for and you. And my husband got a job as a dive master. As <laughs> a what? At home parent, as a dive, he was the dive master, so he was went out on whale tours. And went, oh, wow. <laughs> while I was running this very busy resort, he was living quite the dream. A lot of fishing yes. went on. Um, so, yeah, we did that for a couple of years. That just knocked us absolutely out of, you know, the the real sort of busy world and moved us into a society where people move a lot slower, with lots of cultural challenges, language challenges, really interesting things to face. And then when we came home... How did your children take that shift from being busy, busy kids and at school with their friends and then suddenly in this new A backwater while dad does dive mastering and fishing... And mum's busy, 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 busy yeah. running a resort. How did the kids find schooling and no friends and making friends? Well, um, we were, I'm lucky. My kids are really cool. Um, they only hated us for about three months, I think. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't too long. Nah. Uh, no, our eldest daughter didn't think it was very funny. Um, but we, we, Really, really enjoyed Niue because there aren't a lot of expats there and there isn't a big population. A lot of the other islands have big expat populations that all hang out together, but there isn't a big one there. So we had to immerse really, really quickly in the local community. And the children, and everyone's lovely, but in particular, the teenagers are really lovely and they really took the elder two children under their wing and very quickly made them, you know, part of their friends. And my my son's just gone back for his honeymoon and my daughter made regular trips back every couple of years before wow. she had children. So, and the, some of their closest friends are their Nuan friends. So yeah, it was really life-changing. They thanked us once they were adults. <laughs> they didn't when they were teenagers. <laughs> We've all had that with our children. Yeah. <laughs> Those moments of, <laughs> oh, what you did was really great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I um, sent my oldest boy to China to study when he was 17. And my mother, bless her, never forgave me because she thought it was too brutal. But um, it made him. And oh. he he was growing up very soft. But I did find out 
later that it was a, he had a very scary scary time you know like it was a big leaving home moment and we what's the word coddle them so much now and then I did the opposite I coddled and coddled him and then I said this is too much coddling and I went overboard if you know what I mean you're off to China yeah. <laughs> on your own um at 17 but um <laughs> they do thank you and you do change their trajectory. Did you, when you were in Nui, did you ever think or have moments of exhaustion and kids where you thought I've made a wrong decision? Yeah, uh, right at the very start, things went very stable with my job and it was um, the results actually run between the Nui and New Zealand governments. And okay. I discovered it was actually a really political position and mm. a lot more complex, far more complex than I ever could have imagined. Uh, but I quickly got some support around me. And yeah, there were, it was only really right at the beginning. Once it was home, it, then it became hard to think about leaving. So, right. But you left. We left. It was a two year contract. And uh, it's very commonly known, people that go up and work in the islands, that you do your two years and then you leave or you go a little bit batty. And so a lot of people said to us, don't get tempted, <laughs> keep going, <laughs> you will go nuts. It's a tiny, there's I think about 1,700 people live in Niue, yeah. tiny, tiny country. And, and the reality is we did it for that experience. But the longer we were there, we had terrible internet. You know, the kids were, there were things they weren't experiencing. So... Mm. We did need to come back to society. So we came back and settled in the Waikato because we just wanted a quieter world at that point. And my husband and I both wanted to study. So uh, we kind of decided that the Waikato was a better fit post-Nui than going back to the big city again. <laughs> yeah, so there I took up another uh, position managing a hotel and just just kept getting sicker and sicker. What and, were you studying then? I uh, did my postgrad in business management. Okay, and um, so and work sick. managing a hotel. Yeah, and he was he did his postgrad at the same time and was working full time. Yeah. And by now we had two uh, pre still preschoolers and two teenagers, so it was about as manic as it got. And I think that's a lot of why I missed what was wrong with me because I felt like I was constantly at the doctors something you know would go I'd have gastro problems and then I'd have heart issues and then I have brain fog and I you know and then um, my reproductive kind of issues all just went completely crazy and or I'd twist my ankle and it wouldn't heal or I was aching and I just felt for that first couple of years we were back I was literally you know nearly weekly going into my GP and Unfortunately, she was extremely dismissive of um, my situation, and she just told me to try yoga and try mental health apps and try Bug, basically bugger off. Yeah, lose some weight. I was I was tiny. I was a scrawny stick, and she was saying, <laughs> you know, oh, you've got weight's your problem. It was yeah. She just I could just tell she'd roll her eyes at me when I'd walk in, and there was no help. So I felt like I was just stuck in this just barely holding myself together. And I decided that maybe the hotel industry was the problem. It is, you know, hotel did you, did you think you wouldn't be connecting all those issues to one 
not sure. at all. So you you and no. you were very clear that you had this issue, that issue, that issue, and they were sequential. And you're thinking, oh my God, what's going on? Yeah, but, and off to see this specialist, and then off to see that specialist, and it was very separate. And but each time, you were very conscious that they were real. Oh, I mean, they were. Phys- I was physically presented. You know, I'd have rashes all over me, or I'd have a clearly swollen, twisted ankle, or you know, a lot of them weren't. You couldn't have made them up. Yeah. <laughs> And yet I was still being treated like I was. It was bizarre. It was just so strange to me. I suppose if you're a, I mean, when you go to a doctor nowadays, you do feel as though you're talking to an algorithm where they have their set questions and you have your 10 minutes or 15 minutes and they run through and 95% of things they can attend to in that 15 minutes. I can't wait for AI to come along and be a doctor because it'll spend time and the algorithm will be better. I've already tested it. I put in seven (laughs) symptoms that I had at that point in time and it immediately diagnosed me with EDS. Ah, that's so funny. Isn't that great? Yeah, (laughs) AI is going to be so much. Yeah. Hey, doctor, I'm not Googling what's wrong with me. I've got an AI doctor and it says, so just give me the pills that my AI says I need. Um, so that it's those 5% of rarer, more, or syndromes that are leading yeah. to a complex arrangement of symptoms. And this doctor is not connecting them back to one cause. No, and that's where Ehlers-Danlos syndrome falls completely through the gaps is because they've literally got 15 minutes and, yeah. you know, you can only really well cover one or two things in that time. So they don't have the time to hear the whole story. I would, there were times that I'd book double appointments just so that I knew that I could get through a bit more. This is expensive but too, right? Oh, this is, I can assure you, the whole thing has just been absolutely financially ruining. It's extraordinary, the amount, you know, of, of what I've thrown at completely the wrong things as far as, you know, investing, thinking things would help, wouldn't. Or You're, on, uh, or you're, on, Re- you're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking with uh, Sarah King. We're talking about her disease called EDS which, take us through it slowly, what does that stand for again, Sarah? So it's Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And we're up to the point in her life where she was this amazing, busy mother, entrepreneur, student, everything going on at once, managing the complex tasks that only mothers and wives have to do. (laughs) (laughs) with a whole lot of moving parts and suffering a whole raft, rashes, everything, but all supposedly separate and going off to the doctor to have her doctor roll her eyes and sort of say, oh, it's you again. And yet each time that Sarah's going to see the doctor, she's really suffering and she knows she's sick. 
but not putting it all together as one thing. So did you ever doubt your sanity? Uh, it was further along. I did, yeah, further a few years, kind of further into the process. But so we've this, got this is just the start. Oh, I'm, this is barely touching <laughs> the sides of what. Oh I my god! <laughs> Carry on, because I'm like at the end of my. I'm at the end of my tether now. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. So yeah. So there was uh, there was about a year there of having various surgery that was pointless and seeing when you say surgery like for what uh for endometriosis because she decided that must be what was wrong and so they went in and did that and unfortunately people with eds don't heal well so surgery is literally the worst thing cutting into us is the worst thing you can do because Um, of the connective tissue yeah, so, uh, and I saw so many different specialists. I was on wait lists for you know, nearly every hospital department at one point. It was completely crazy. And I decided I couldn't keep going and I had to stop. And so my contract was coming up and I decided I'd take a couple of months off work and just stop and heal and get better and put an end to it all. And then I just went downhill at an extraordinary pace. I started developing allergies to really common household things, um, chemicals, foods, everything under the sun. I couldn't, I literally couldn't get out of bed. I ended up, um, I was doing about 20 hours in bed. I couldn't shower by myself without fainting. So we had to have a bath lift to get me in and out. And I was in a wheelchair if I was up. And I basically checked out. There was about a year and a half there that I just, lay in bed and used any energy I could for when my children were around Um, and other than that just slept and slept and slept and if I got up I would hurt myself it was it was just hideous I was absolutely convinced at that point that I was just slowly dying of something like CFS Um, And I was reading stories of other people with CFS, CME, um, and how they did die. Was that chronic fatigue syndrome? Yeah, yeah. And it's very easy for me to listen to this and to be terribly sympathetic and show empathy. But on a day-to-day business, this is hard to live with. Oh, it's it's an impossible so, psychological game that you're trapped in a body. So your child, your children, and your husband, they're having to struggle. Like, what the hell? They're not expecting a mother and a wife. No, it was... Excuse me, to be neat, to be so useless. Yeah. To and be... I was- questioning everything about my role as a mother and a wife and to be so demanding like gotta be helped and like and it's yucky right oh it's awful you lose your dignity you lose your respect in yourself you it it just so how are your children how are your children handling this their mums are they i mean i imagine they would have preferred life without it but they also all found their own kind of ways to cope. My son as a teenager just sort of kept himself as distant as possible, as teenage boys all do, let alone ones with chronically ill moms. Um, the younger ones have, 
I've really always been ill. They don't really know me any other way. So they're incredibly empathetic little people and caring and loving and did their best to help me in every way they could. So, yeah, that we've done our best to get through an awful situation. And how were you managing financially? Could you manage? Well, at that point in time, um, I we I had worked, you know, up until recently, and so it was a real, real push, but we just slowly started working through all of our savings. And then as I got sicker and sicker, the, my doctor wrote a letter saying he doubted I had more than a year to live, and my Kiwi saver was paid out, so then we worked our way through that. So... Um, yeah, no, it's it wasn't easy. Every day was a backward step. And there was no potential future that didn't look like that. It was that was terrifying. And you know, I knew that one day we'd get to the point where we couldn't keep going like that anymore. That um, letter that you had a year to live, did you believe that? Yeah, I did. I I was uh, I developed anaphylaxis and was having, you know, just constantly using $170 a pop EpiPens. So I would push it and push it and try to get through and try to medicate myself and not use one unless I absolutely had to use it because the cost was just so massive. And, you know, the ambulance people were just so sick of me and everyone was sick of all the drama. And so, uh, yeah, so I was very sure that, that I planned my whole funeral at that point. I was How long ago was this, Sarah? This is about probably about three and a half years, maybe three and a half, four years ago now. Hard to believe looking at you. <laughs> it's all about attitude. <laughs> well, it's a lot of laughs that you've had yeah. since then that you oh, look, if you don't laugh, really, what else would you do? No. <laughs> well, I've cried enough. <laughs> Someone told me at the weekend that we're going to win. And when I say we, you know, us people who are sceptical of all the madness and the media and the politics. And he said, we're going to win because we have humanity and we can laugh and joke. And, you know, it's really struck home because you look at all these politicians and the media and woke wokesters. Not a lot of fun in their lives. <laughs> you know, oh. <laughs> we can sit here and laugh about your death. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and at this stage, no one's actually, you're sick. You're very, very, very sick. No one quite knows what it is. And you think, oh, I must have really bad chronic fatigue because it's the only sort of yeah. thing. And then even that's not very satisfying because it's a syndrome rather than, a, you know, if you get cancer and people say, oh, you've got cancer, it's sort of wonderful when you get a diagnosis, isn't it? This is what's wrong with oh, you. And you sort of, exactly. I know and who the enemy is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you're suffering. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so that's when it got really, really bad because I wasn't always in bed. There were times I was okay. Well, not, you know, better, um, better than usual. And so I was seeing different doctors and that was the point that the doctors started turning on me and they would, they started to imply that it was all in my head. And so the support people who I had around me at that time believed the doctors and 
they believed that it was all in my head and that I was just addicted to painkillers and I was attention seeking and everyone was just kind of really sick of it. It was just exhausting for everybody. And um, I wasn't making any progress and no one could find anything wrong. So clearly there was nothing wrong. Yes. Um, So the absence, my failure to know what's wrong with this person means that they're not sick. Therefore, it's in their head and they're mental and probably should be given mental drugs and put in an institution. Exactly. So And and your, your loved ones are looking at you and thinking, well, she's not dying of bloody cancer or anything. She hasn't had that heart attack um, or a stroke. So, and everyone's telling us that, you know, mum's not too good in the head department and it sort of fits, right? Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, in hindsight, I can see it, but I needed people to keep advocating for me and I needed support and I, and as more and more doctors were sitting down with my family and saying, you know, Sarah's, you know, really just, it's, she's actually creating these reactions in her body psychologically. Um, You know, and if she takes the medication, she, she, we've really got to deal with, you know, the psychological issues and the pain clinic were really similar. You know, they were like, look, pain is all entirely in your head and you know if we can work through that that then you won't be in pain anymore and you won't feel tired and Did so you believe them I didn't know I never I always knew something was wrong because none of it was my personality at all no. like if I've been someone who you know had sort of suffered with depression through my life or something or I could I could see, but I couldn't understand how you can go from who I was to this and how anyone, doctors or the people around me, could think that made sense. None of it added up for me. I always knew something was wrong and it was being missed and kept searching. And there was a point at about this point, actually, that my husband and I did bring up EDS and I was told, no, no, um, you don't fit the criteria, but you also need to stop Googling. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to Google diagnose yourself. And so we were completely cut off at that point. And so that, yeah, it got, it started to get really vicious in my personal life. Um, it, my husband was trying to get me to take medication that I knew was making me sicker. And I knew there was all sorts of different psych meds and heart meds and all sorts of things. And I knew that it, wasn't working and so we were just absolutely at war over his belief yeah I he wanted me to get better he wanted me to follow Mm. what the doctors said to do and you know and And, I he's he's been through the mill yeah and totally with you yeah he's trying to help our whole whole family everything all Mm. of the pressures of the world were suddenly on his shoulders, which, you know, they hadn't been. And so... It's a strange thing about uh, a loved one, like a child or a spouse, is that you suffer more, I think, than they do when something's not right. 
you know, when they're attacked yeah. or someone's rude or something goes wrong. And if it was happening to you, you would be dealing with it. But to watch them suffer and that inability to help is, I think, the spouse or the mother or father suffers more, which is a strange way of thinking about it, yeah. isn't it? It is, yeah, but I, and that that inability to do something, and then the conflicting information that we were yes. getting, you know, the conflicting between what I was saying and what Google was saying and what the doctors were all saying, and yeah, and it just it it ended up completely tearing my whole family apart. I most of my support network just simply refused to help me anymore. Um, I had, there were a few really bad incidences where there was one that I, I'd worked my way up the list of painkillers from the bottom to, and got to methadone, which is after you've done the tramadols and the oxys and the codeines and things, you end up with methadone. Uh, and I missed, I'd fallen asleep and I didn't get up in time to pick up my prescription on a Friday night and I didn't know what to do. So I went up to the hospital where it had been prescribed and explained and said, look, I don't know what happens with withdrawal and I'm really scared and they put me in a room and then the police came and took me out put me on the road outside the hospital told me I wasn't allowed on the grounds anymore and left me there um and I ended they up regarded at, you as a meth addict I was I was told I was drug seeking um and I said I'm not drug seeking <laughs> I'm here for information I you know if, if I can go the whole weekend with no methadone and be okay that's fine. I, I'm here because I've been put on this extreme wow. drug and I'm terrified. And oh when I do Google, God. it's if I'm going to go into withdrawal really, really badly. Um, no one was interested. By that stage, I had such a huge file at the hospital and I'd received a conversion disorder diagnosis, which is the equivalent of hysteria. Um, and so it, no one even made it past that diagnosis. It sits at the top of your file and they go, oh, here she is again. So I. And now yeah, so you've got your, your, an hysterical woman who's a drug addict. Yeah, apparently. The drugs that the pain clinic at that hospital prescribed me that I didn't want. I just didn't know what else to do. I was just in so much pain and so, so standing scared. standing outside the hospital grounds. Is it day or night? This is now the evening. Yeah, and um, a, a, some strangers came to help me, and one of them said, "I've got. I know someone on methadone. I'll get you enough. You know what? Do you, what's your dosis?" And I pulled out the bottle, and she went off, and she came back about half an hour later with enough to get me through. The weekend, which is, you know, she could have given me anything. It's absurd that a stranger gave me the methadone to get through the weekend because the medical people who prescribed it, who were 50 meters away from me, wouldn't, I wasn't allowed back on the grounds. It sounds it's like, insane. that sounds unreal. It sounds like a movie. The, the, there's been multiple moments. I've been lying in anaphylaxis in a hospital bed an emergency and had doctors just mocking me and laughing me and saying, you know, here, because what did you do, Sarah? Have another fight with your husband. So you're here to get a bit more attention. Do people give you flowers when you come to the hospital, Sarah? Doctors <laughs> saying that. 
teachers, the head of the department openly mocked me multiple times. He'd laugh when he saw me because they, if you use an EpiPen, you have to go to hospital. So I, you know, well, there were sometimes I had to be treated in hospital with more and more and more because one EpiPen wasn't enough. But a lot of times I'd given myself the EpiPen, I'd got the anaphylaxis under control and I'd followed the protocol, which is to go into hospital. And there they mocked, laughed, made an absolute fool of me, told me I clearly loved attention and that I was wasting up resources for actual sick people. And it, mm. it became, I was terrified. I was terrified of having anaphylaxis. And I was terrified that that would mean I'd end up in the hospital where they were so vicious and so cruel to me. And Because at the top of your file is hysteria. Exactly, yeah. And and seeking methadone. Yeah. And I'm struggling not to say bad words. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I probably was using bad words, which probably wasn't helping my situation, to be honest. (laughs) Go back to the movie bit too. This whole thing is a movie reel. You've got this, you're outside the hospital in the evening and these strangers walk up. Were they meth addicts, you think? No, not at all. No, no, she was leaving. Uh, she actually, uh, she was had been there visiting someone, her grandmother. Oh, wow. Oh, and I was lying. I completely soiled myself because that was also part of my fantastic anaphylaxis reaction is yeah. that, Everything just completely gives away and I'm vomiting and, you know, lying there just on what the an, grass on the side. An angel. Of the what an angel. Yeah. And she was like, we've got to get you in there. And I said, I can't. <laughs> I'm not allowed back in there. They'll call the police. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah. This it, is Waikato Hospital. Yes, this is, yeah. It's all outside Waikato. And I filed a complaint and I was told that they'd done nothing wrong. Um, so... That was the last time I ever filed a hospital complaint. Even though things just kept getting worse, I never bothered again because I realised the system's not not set up to help us. Um, I mean, I know people, there are people who do have good experiences and I understand that the hospital, there are people it does help. But once you've fallen far enough through those cracks to get some sort of psych diagnosis, it's next to impossible to undo that. So the next um, stage in it going wrong was by now I friends and family just really hated me and I was so angry that no one would advocate for me and no one would help and I was alone just constantly um, in these situations where I'd have to phone an ambulance and I'd be asking strangers, sorry, this is always harder to cover, um, to look after my children and... I would be blacking out due to anaphylaxis and not sure if I was going to wake again. Um, and I was, and I was really lashing out at my family. I just couldn't believe that they could let me be left alone to do this by myself. And um, a couple of friends took it upon themselves to report me to SIFS, which is uh, now ta- uh, something Tamariki. Oh, yeah. uh, yeah. Anyway, I rang Tamariki. Yeah. yeah, and so the police raided my home. Four of them turned up at four o'clock on a Tuesday morning. and Four in the morning. Four in the morning, bashing on the doors to let them in. Um, they all came in, spotlights. It was all, I was told to sit at the table. I wasn't allowed to move. They were there to get my children. 
Um, and uh, I mean, the whole thing was was just, it was so far past a nightmare, I could kind of barely walk. And they came in, bashed their way through the house, and then very, very quickly realised that they that there was nothing going on. My kids were safely tucked up in bed. There was, you know, it was perfectly safe. So the senior sergeant who was with them stayed with me and he said to me at the time, um, yeah, a report was put through for the welfare of your children and clearly it wasn't right. And I wanted to know what they'd said and he wouldn't tell me. He said to me, whoever reported this really hates you. Um, so I explained the bigger story that was going on and um, at that point in time, I now had a SIFS record and a police record for having to check on my kids and was terrified, absolutely terrified that I was going to lose my children and be put, the, my doctor was at that point talking about putting me in residential care, which is basically they just stick you in an old person's home to die because you're kind of in the way and you're getting kind of annoying. Uh, and I started to question my own sanity at that point. Um, so I had Just a site. explain to me, if you will, and you don't have to, because it might be too private, but at this stage, you're on your own with your two youngest children. Yeah, yeah. The others so had worked older and moved out by this point. And your husband was living apart from you. Yeah, we'd temporarily separated because of because I just was, yeah, I was yeah. too much. It was I should much. race ahead and say that you're back together, which yes. is lovely. Yeah, we are. But, and we, but at uh, this stage, work. you were on your own with two young children, hence SIFs. And, man, you must have some great files on you. Oh, my, honestly, I can imagine they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> Every department of everywhere has has records of what a crazy drama queen I am. <laughs> so. And and of course it's all got a pic. You just anyone just has to look at it and they've got the full picture of you. Yeah. And having lost what you think is everything, you're now risking not just losing your life or blacking out and not waking up, you're at risk of losing your two children to the system. Yeah. And that was just, that was too much. So at that point I decided, yeah, maybe everyone was right. And I went for a psych assessment and I was admitted to the psych ward um, at Waikato and given more psych meds that made me, definitely did make me actually crazy at that point. I have no doubt I've got just, the vaguest memories I remember blacking out in the shower and waking up on the floor and all the whole thing is just a haze because you shouldn't you can't give people psych meds who don't need psych meds <laughs> you know it's it's not but you just can't do it. it it makes them sick and so I was yeah medicated just just to the eyeballs uh, and pretty much just gave up at that point and decided that if I just accepted that everybody was right and that and I stopped trying to fight the system stopped trying to fight with doctors stopped trying to fight with my family just agreed with everyone and just accepted that I wasn't worthy of the care or the love or the medical aid or 
any of it. Maybe that would be, sorry, again, struggle with this one still too clearly all these years later. Um, I, yeah, that I, if, if I just accepted I wasn't worthy, then maybe I would stay alive. Like the fight. You were, you were totally me. broken. Yeah. The, the battle was worse than the illness. And if I could give up the battle, maybe I'd still have a fighting chance of staying alive through it. So, so I gave yeah. up. Mm, you just you're on reality check radio. It's real talk with Rodney Hyde, and this is real, real talk with uh, our guest Sarah King, who's oh. describing her experience of having this disease called EDS, which is genetic and which destroys your connective tissue, but manifests itself in a whole complex array of symptoms. Everything's falling to bits. But undiagnosed at this stage, just got hysteria written on her top of a very fat hospital file, a drug addict for checking in after sleeping through her appointment to see what would happen if you didn't have methadone for pain through the weekend, soiling herself outside Waikato Hospital, and having a complete stranger walk up to check on her when the police had just removed her from the hospital and dumped her in the street outside and arranging through a family friend medication to get through the weekend. Then we have the police raiding her house at four in the morning, looking to remove her two youngest children from her because she's not fit to be a mother and not providing them with the care they need. And the police recognizing that that had been a false report. And now we have her in a psychiatric ward being fed psychiatric drugs, which are on top of everything, messing with her mind. So she's totally alone, extremely sick, bereft, and lost and giving up is that summarizing it sarah yeah that's that's it in a nutshell at that point it was and here you are here you are so beautiful so wonderful so full of life telling us the story so what happened well i stuck it lucky um um not not to maybe a few months earlier, when I had been into my GP, she hadn't been there that day, and I saw the the one who just you know the covering GP, and he said, "I read your file before you came in, and I'm going to find out what's wrong with you." And he'd been reading the reports that had come through from the hospital. He'd read you know everything. He was so interested, and I thought, "Yeah, sure you are, buddy." But he was like a dog with a bone. He was absolutely convinced that they were all missing something. And he researched and researched. I was getting emails from him at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. Wow. He kept going and going and going. And at that time, part of giving up meant psychologically I'd kind of given up. So my body also gave up. So I got stuck in what they call rolling anaphylaxis and it's where you you don't come out of anaphylaxis 
before the next one hits. Essentially, you're just you're in a constant rolling state of some level of hyper reaction. And for me, my comorbidities are POTS, the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and mast cell activation syndrome. So I suffer from mast cell um, anaphylaxis, and it doesn't present like normal anaphylaxis. And it's all of your mast cells going completely crazy in your body. Um, and I got trapped there. So I ended up having eight hospitalizations in three I weeks. don't know what any of that means. Right. So, so uh, yeah, uh, neither did I, to be fair, let's be <laughs> honest. I didn't know that's what was happening. <laughs> uh, what it basically it basically means is uh, most people that suffer from anaphylaxis just have an allergic reaction to something and it is it's your throat that kicks in, you know, and and closes and you have really, and your blood pressure goes up, you have really obvious signs of anaphylaxis. Mm-hmm. Mast cell anaphylaxis is, mast cells are all through our body and mine are constantly stuck on and quite confused. So when you go into mast cell anaphylaxis, ah. your whole body does a full reaction, um, which was why for me going into anaphylaxis meant things like soiling myself, which is not, common and kind of weird for someone in anaphylaxis but for me the way mine presented was really different I'd get a full body rash and I'd get just all sorts of really weird symptoms at the same time so I got stuck in this place where my mast cells couldn't calm down enough to stop it happening and I was reacting to just literally one thing after another over this three-week period I touched washing powder it fell on my hand and I was suddenly in anaphylaxis and a peach that I'd forgotten to wash the chemicals off that set me off I was allergic to the whole world like a fake lighting would set me off and someone's perfume if I walked past someone in the supermarket their perfume could set me off I had to like protect myself from the world. It was completely crazy. And so I got trapped in this space and he was watching these uh, hospital, you know, reports come through to the GP's clinic and he was just like, she's going to die. So he found a specialist um, who, who does diagnose EDS in New Zealand, contacted him, told him my story and he said, yeah, no, this is this is really bad. He has years-long wait lists, but he saw me within two days and immediately diagnosed me, told me I wasn't crazy. One of the first things he said to me <laughs> was, you're not crazy. Oh, and you'd want to kiss him. But I don't. <laughs> Honestly, the, the, this that man. must have been just... Yeah. Huge, life-changing. I started All those years. All those years. All the years, and he knew exactly what I'd gone, I'd gone through. He had heard so many, you know, been involved in so many similar stories that nothing I told him shocked him, absolutely nothing. You know, I was sort of waiting for him to go, oh, gosh, that, oh, my gosh, that, nothing. He, he said, yeah, you are a classic case of England. So he wasn't surprised by all your symptoms because he'd heard it before. Yeah. And he wasn't surprised by the health system's handling of it. No, not at all. Because he'd heard all that before too. Yeah. And And he was able able to break it all down for me as well into, you know, into this is 
EDS causes this. Um, you know, all the different comorbidities that you get with it. This is what causes this. This is this is how we're going to treat this. This is what we're going to do with this. This is how we're going to restabilize your body. So, so it wasn't he was just- he he is a respected medical professional in the health system. Uh, I I mean yeah. this in a nice way, in I the know sense what, that I know what you mean. <laughs> a lot of doctors who help us and listen to us and tell us what's wrong with us and what we need and you get better, we find a lot of them dismissed by their peers. But he was a doctor who you were referred to by your locum GP. So I'm imagining that this doctor is is within the system. Yes, so he's deeply respected in the international EDS community. Okay. Uh, I have heard stories of other specialists dismissing his diagnosis, diagnoses. Mm. Uh, because they've um, made their mind uh, up and they don't, and exactly. they will, because of their nature of being a credentialed expert who's so used to patients coming in yes sir no sir three bags full sir you know and they do it and they have their peers and their peer review and all the rest of it very difficult for them to admit they're wrong well and they don't and so I'd seen you know other specialists in exactly the same field who'd already told me that's not what's wrong with you oh wow And I think that's one of the saddest parts of my story is the way our medical system is set up. There's no reflection, you know, no self-reflection, no internal review process. My diagnosis doesn't go back down the chain. It doesn't help future people in any way because the arrogance and ignorance that I faced, you know, with these medical professionals who thought that they knew everything, even though clearly Google knew more than them, clearly, which I told them, you know, far more often than I should have, but it's all right here. Yeah. (laughs) That they they couldn't get past if they weren't medically trained in that. That's not real. So the awful thing is, is that we have this specialist who knows about EDS, can diagnose it, could predict everything that had happened to you, could explain it, could make sense of it, could diagnose it, you would think that the note, if it was McDonald's, and if you do X, the fat could go on fire, there'd be a note prepared that night, and it would be within, I know this, uh, I, I've had this explained to me. There is there was a fire in the Rickerton McDonald's. A note was done within 24 hours. The practice in every McDonald's in the world had changed, right? Because this yeah. peculiar thing had happened. So you would think that patient X, who has been misdiagnosed and ill-treated by the system for years and years and years at terrific financial, personal and social cost, 
you think a system that was well like a help like your resort in Newark, if there's a cock up right it gets picked up it gets reported within the system and it goes out to make sure it doesn't happen again but this doctor is telling you that this is happening over and over and over now and there'll be people all around the world and possibly in New Zealand who are going through exactly what you went through and he and it's rinse and repeat yeah and it's even worse than that post diagnosis I still couldn't get my conversion disorder diagnosis removed from my file so you know I post diagnosis I've still had three four years of regular ambulance trips because even though the anaphylaxis is far under control I still have to have constant contact with the hospital they won't remove it no I can't get any of those misdiagnoses removed from my file well it's crazy well it's like a little common estate the health system and they can never be wrong no, that, and that's exactly it. They, there is no opportunity for them. And, and to be fair, I, I really believe that while I faced some nasty, vicious human beings who should not be in healthcare at all, it's a system issue. I had doctors who couldn't help me because that just simply wasn't their job or there's no funding to help me or, you know, it, it wasn't that everyone relished in my hideous story and no. being a part of it. It was just, you know, I had specialists that I would go to and they would say to me, something's wrong with you, but it's not my department and I, I can't help you. And so they can wash you know, their hands. If we had a system, yeah, if we had a system where departments even communicated with each other. You know, you're treated, your body is treated in our medical system like every single part is completely separate and not connected to anything else. The heart doctor looks at the heart, only the heart. That's all he's interested in. You know, the the physio looks at the leg and helps fix that and leg that, and nothing else. And it took that locum looking at it and spending all those hours Saturday night included working through and then sending you off to the one specialist in New Zealand, I assume. Yeah, there are now more, but at that point he was the only one diagnosing. With an 18-month. So you got, we're up to the point where you have a name that you have, this is what is wrong with me, and all these symptoms that I've been suffering all these years go back to this thing that I have with my body. And that explains why I was being put in a psych institute and been giving psychiatric medicine because I was being misdiagnosed. So I've got all of that understanding, which in of itself must have been wonderful, right? Oh, it was so exciting. Just that. But I then what <laughs> But then what happened? Like, did you do no, things? What no, happened there? No one really cared. It was ah. just this, abs- I think people were so sick of 
my drama and my, you know, attention seeking and my story. And now apparently I've got this rare illness that That I can't pronounce. Yeah, that's genetic and oh, and they can't heal me. And it was just more drama. And so it, it took years for my world to really change and for me to have contact with some of my family members I'd completely lost contact with. Um, and it took me accepting people are never really going to understand what I went through, um, accepting that in the future I'm going to get sicker again and I may have to do this all again. And that's just how it is. I had to find peace in myself. I couldn't continue to go on knowing because while I had a label, which was really exciting, the label came with this is for life and only gets worse and it's how you're built and there's nothing we can really do ultimately to fix it. You just have to learn to find ways to live with it. Um, and you're so doing I, that. I am. And I did. You know, and I, you're living, I you're living the good life. I'm, I'm living a dream life. We, I realized I can't do society. I can't do stress. Stress is without a doubt the biggest trigger for me. So I had to find a peaceful way to exist. So we moved up into the hills away from society and our kids go to a gorgeous little country school where, you know, people are friendly and sweet and the kids don't care what other kids are wearing or what's in their lunchbox. And we have a community around us. Um, yeah, we You're live back with your husband. Yeah. Yeah. We've, so we're working through and it, it, there was a huge amount of trust lost through that process. I'm so, so pleased you're back hard, together. But yeah, but we 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 decided we had to work through it all. You know, we've got four kids and two grandkids to to have a community, you know, around us with and a broken marriage wasn't going to help anything. And he's vastly changed his perspective, vastly over the years on all of it. You know, it's now he he sees the medical system the way I do. Whereas he, just like most of the people in my world, thought that our medical system could do no wrong. And our, well, our doctors told me they're right. Well, I think we have been through an experience with COVID these past three years that have changed many, many, many people's view of our medical system. Uh, it helped me, I can assure yeah. you. And, and <laughs> I... Don't trust them. And I still can't believe the lies that yeah. were told through COVID. And they were clearly lies. And you could say that they were unwitting, but yeah. they went along politically with a system that put. Jacinda Ardern and Ashley Bloomfield talking points between me and the doctor. And as we now know, between the pathologist and the death. Yeah. So you're yeah, living. And we all have access to the same internet. I think that's the bit that blows my mind through it all. Yes. We all had access. We could all see the role that happened six months earlier. 
we all had access to the same information. So how yes. people have ended up on such different camps, I don't understand. But no. I know I only see it because I already had absolutely no faith in the system. No, no you loved it. <laughs> so. Now, are you worried that your children and grandchildren will have this condition? I'm, I'm not worried. This is just a reality. Um, in fact, if anything, I'm glad I went through what I went through and I didn't drop dead because it, if it's managed from a younger age, it doesn't have to have anything like the impact. It doesn't have to do the damage that it uh, it did to my life. Um, I'm pretty, are you are you running around this. bending their thumbs to see? Yeah, yeah, we do actually. It's really unfortunately all my kids are somewhat hypermobile. Uh. Hypermobility in itself doesn't okay. necessarily, and I mean, a lot of children are hypermobile full stop just because their bodies okay. are growing and they're bendy. Um, but I think we we do think there's a, there's a likelihood that two of the kids have got it. Uh, but as I say, I'm just I'm so ridiculously proactive about making sure that as soon as things appear, we get onto it and we get bodies stabilised. There's amazing, amazing alternative therapies that help. Mm. Um, there's like, so so for me to, to be up alive and smiling at you right now, I see a chiropractor every three weeks. I see my specialist. And as I said at the beginning, I have the prolotherapy injections, which is slowly restabilising the major joints in my body. Um, I see a contact care practitioner, and so she works with a method called flinchlock release, and that helps with the pain, the aching. It also helps with a lot of the emotional challenges that I went through and the trauma. And uh, so I have sort of my own little world around me right now that keeps me upright and together. But for my children, as they, if they do emerge, that this is what they've got. Uh, it'll be more about physiotherapy and learning to strengthen certain parts of the body right from the start, right from young, <laughs> so that they never get to this point and never break. Yeah. Now, I've got two final questions because I have loved this conversation as upsetting and it is a very moving story. Do you like your chickens? <laughs> I love my chickens. <laughs> I love my chickens more than anything in the world. No, not quite more than my kids and my family, but I, chickens are the best. They're you got, you got hens that lay eggs, chickens. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So I'm a, I, th I would like to have them, but I find them a bit scary. Oh, no, no. You know what? I, I don't think people have any idea the personalities chickens have until you have oh, them. Okay, like, well. They love dogs. They're hilarious. They make okay. me so happy. Yeah. yeah. We're working towards a self-sustainable life where possible because you know, any chemical on a vegetable is bad for me. And oh, any of course you've hypersensitive, yeah. Yeah, because of all of that, we're working towards, you know, we've we're we're trying to have as little to do with the chemicals of the world. And that means, yeah, eggs and chickens and veggie gardens. Yeah. And be very stuff. careful where you get your meat from. Oh, good for yeah, you. You gotta yeah, you gotta listen to me and Wally. Uh, when we do our show, because um, we do a show every fortnight on gardening, and he's just wonderful. And second thing, deeper yes. question, do you have a religious faith? I don't. I never 
did. I was raised by a family with Catholics and Presbyterians and all I ever saw in my world was uh, fighting over religion. So I didn't understand why. What I do have uh, is I don't like to use the word religion and I don't even these days like to use the word spiritual because I kind of think that even that now has a bunch of weirdo connotations to it. I have a belief that something is there and something has got me through this. There's no something doubt. Something has, right. Something has at those moments that were the worst of the worst of the worst, something told me to pull through and it would be okay. And um, that feeling, I have no doubt, is something. <laughs> but I just well, let's say, say you label it. Well, yeah, it's it is definitely it's a god, and I think personally, my belief on it all is I think all religions are the same, and I think we've all got the same god, and I think spiritualism mm. is the same. Everyone's got it's just all got different labels for for that. Is that amazing because yeah, you had that ability to go so deep within yourself to survive this and come out smiling but also you felt you were being helped through it yeah I really do I really I really feel like there was there was something that picked me up and carried me through the parts where I just couldn't anymore yeah. Okay, Sarah, you're so wonderful. Would you mind one day coming back on my show? Because I'd love to learn all about your straw house or cob house that you've built and your chickens and your sustainability, because it looks and sounds so wonderful. Because yeah, We'd and love then to we don't need to talk. Well, we'll check in on how you are, but that would be rather. You've done. An, you're doing an amazing job up in the hills. If anyone would like to send uh, Sarah a note, uh, text me twenty fifty seven, and I'll send it on, or email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. You might have some questions because you might know a family member that is suffering something like this or having a struggle with the health system, and. That from Sarah was a truly remarkable experience. Um, sort of words failed you. And I'm just so pleased I never used any bad ones. Um, <laughs> how she was treated. So that was Sarah King, a truly amazing, amazing human being, amazing woman, beautiful woman, strong woman. Uh, lived a life and suffered a life like we can't imagine we can just hear and listen and gain strength from because it certainly strengthens me and haven't we learned this past little while to question everything and not just take the guys in the white coats with their degrees on the wall uh, as gospel thank you for listening this is real talk with rodney hyde you're on really check radio what a talk, what a speech. Thank you. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.